You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. Today, we will discuss strategies about implementing digital technology tools within health systems for improving adherence and patient support. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, this is Todd Yuri with the Pharmacy Podcast. Excited about today. This is um, a second part, a follow-up to a pre- previous conversation that we have. We are on a very important topic. Uh, today, we're going to talk about implementing digital technology tools with uh, health systems for improving adherence and patient support. And we're, we're highlighting BTK inhibitors in patient management. And we're having um, our special guest return um, to really highlight this and kind of dig into this. Uh, this is interesting for me. I love technology. I love the fact that um, pharmacists are engaging digital therapeutics and technology to do more for their patients. Welcome back, Dr. Anthony Parasinati. Um, I hope you've been doing well. Thanks for having me back, Todd. I had a great time the first time, and I'm sure we'll have a great time again. Absolutely. Just in case the listeners don't know, uh, Dr. Anthony, give just a short background uh, as a clinical pharmacist and specialist in, in what you focus on. Sure. So I'm a clinical pharmacist specialist in hematology. Uh, so I take care of patients with uh, aggressive lymphomas, indolent lymphomas, uh, and acute leukemias. I typically uh, see patients uh, when they're on the inpatient side, when they're a little bit more acutely ill. Uh, and I also help with my colleagues uh, when our patients are transitioned uh, to the outpatient. There's a lot of back and forth with some of these patients. Uh, fortunately, with these indolent lymphomas, uh, most of them can be managed uh, completely as an outpatient. So uh, I get to uh, take care of them um, in a variety of different settings. So in our previous episode, you and I touched on BTK inhibitors, and you shared with us before about their usages, and you really did a really great job in kind of um, different the differences, and we started kind of uh, splitting hairs. And for listeners, there's going to be part one in the show notes. If you haven't listened to part one, there will be a link there. But can you um, can you kind of give us the uh, usage, the uses, the difference in B cell malignancies? Can you remind us of which uh, agents uh, there are and and where they're used? Yeah, I would love to. Um, and, and, you know, the way you described it, splitting hairs, that's exactly what we did last time. Um, all three of these agents that we use are all very efficacious. Uh, they are safe medications. And really, it comes down to my type A personality to really distinguish uh, the differences between these. Um, but for most patients, um, you know, they're not going to notice any differences uh, between the three agents. Um, so the first uh, BTK inhibitor is what we call our first generation. It came to market first uh, is abrutinib. And so w- with abrutinib, there were some off-target 
uh, toxicities because uh, abrutinib doesn't just inhibit BTK. None of the BTK inhibitors just inhibit BTK. And so the, the claim to fame for our second generations was let's make them a little bit more specific to BTK so that we can prevent some of the off-target toxicities. And so our second generations are acalabrutinib uh, and xanabrutinib. And, you know, as I suggested, there's not really much difference from an efficacy standpoint, at least from what we've studied thus far. Um, but there seems to be more and more hints that there are differences in uh, tolerability uh, where acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib uh, may be a little bit more tolerated for some patients. Now, uh, because abrutinib has been on the market the longest, it's been FDA approved and, and NCCN recommended in a number of settings. The first is first line CLL and you know really all lines of CLL. Uh, we'll also use it in, in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, uh, mantle cell lymphoma in the second line setting or later, uh, and then marginal zone lymphoma in the second line or later. With a calibrutinib, it came a little bit later than a brutinib. Uh, it's starting to move into all spaces, but for right now where it's FDA approved, is uh, frontline CLL, and we'll use it also in later lines. Uh, and then also similar to a brutinib, it's used in mantle cell lymphoma in the second line. Now, xanabrutinib is the newest kid on the block. Uh, right now, its FDA approval is in mantle cell uh, lymphoma in the second line. And I do anticipate later this year that it will likely get an FDA approval for Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. And that's based off of a randomized controlled trial uh, comparing xanabrutinib to abrutinib in uh, Waldenstrom's. So those are the agents and, and those are where we use them. You know, when I talk to different pharmacists about disease states and the special, the special intensity that they bring um, to their patients from the information that you that you soak in that you understand as clinical pharmacists i think of the health system pharmacist and uh, the unique um, environment that they're in where they have a shortened amount of time with their patients and they see cases that are different over and over again and um, I'm, I'm curious to understand what are some of the challenges pharmacists have with management of these agents within the health, uh, within the health system pharmacy setting. You know, globally, the, the biggest challenge for pharmacists is constantly having to adapt, right? So we went from using primarily cytotoxic chemotherapies, which have their own challenges, to now completely you know, resurfacing how we treat these patients with BTK inhibitors and other oral targeted therapies. And so that was a huge paradigm shift. So we had to change the way that we manage patients, change the way that we look at patients, change what we monitor for patients. So there's a lot, a lot of change. So I think the biggest challenge for pharmacists is just constantly adapting to change, being sort of like the chameleon of the team that whatever is needed from a patient perspective, we jump in um, and we help our patient in, in that way. Um, you know, from a specific perspective of our oral BTK inhibitors, you know, one of the bigger challenges is that these are oral agents. They're no longer IV medications. And so when you're given an intravenous medication, it has to be administered by a nurse. The patients come in every, you know, three, four weeks or so. Um, but a, a nurse can physically watch the patient get the medication, right? Well, 
with BTK inhibitors, patients are on therapy uh, potentially lifelong or until they progress, which could be years. And so they're taking a medication once, maybe twice per day indefinitely. Um, and we're not there with our patients uh, in their home watching them take their medication. Uh, we do our best to uh, remind them, um, but adherence can be a big challenge for patients. Um, so we end up having to rely a lot on our patients um, so, so one of the things that we'll do is uh, talk about the importance of adherence upfront, uh, which we're going to talk extensively about today, um, and also to, to remind them to call us when they're having problems and when they have questions. So adherence was um, one of the big challenges. Uh, monitoring patients is a little bit different as well. Normally, you know, with monitoring of cytotoxic chemotherapy, things usually monitoring for the first couple of days for things like tumor lysis syndrome. Then you might get, you know, interim labs, but usually the, our, our PAs and MDs are monitoring uh, to see if their counts are dropping. Well, with our BTK inhibitors, there's not really uh, cycles. This is just continuous therapy that we have to continue to uh, kind of be in touch with our patients. So um, over time, patients develop toxicities, uh, and it's not always easy to catch because they're at home and uh, we we might not be in close communication with them, even if we are communicating with them initially, you know, every two weeks or you know more often than that. Sometimes, eventually, they're on therapy for years, and we can't keep um, kind of holding their hand through therapy. And it could be six months before, you know, the last time that we, we talked to the patient. Um, and then coordination uh, with oral medications is a challenge. Um, you know, the, you would think that writing a prescription as easy as writing a prescription, patient goes to the pharmacy and picks it up, right? That's what I do when I have a medication to go to CVS and great, my medication's waiting for me. Unfortunately, with oral uh, chemotherapies, because of their expense, because of restrictions of where they need to go through specialty pharmacies, uh, it ends up going through a lot of different hands that us as pharmacists, we kind of have to track. It can go through insurance companies and stall through there. Uh, there could be some issues with co-pays uh, that are financial coordinators or working through. Um, things can then go back to the clinic where we're waiting for physicians uh, to kind of write uh, appeal letters. Uh, sometimes we're waiting for specialty pharmacy, waiting for delivery. So, you know, if, if we're not on the ball with our oral uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, there can be significant delays for some patients. So take us through, walk our pharmacists through who are listening through different touch points pharmacists have within the patient journey as they start a BTK inhibitor? Every institution is a little bit different, but I can give you a, a broad example of, of how our pharmacists interact. And there are multiple pharmacists. Uh, it's not just me or it's just not, not, not my colleague. Uh, we have multiple pharmacists in multiple different settings with multiple different backgrounds. Uh, so the first place that our pharmacists are embedded are within our clinics, whether it's a lymphoma clinic or a leukemia clinic. They are physically there with the healthcare team, uh, making decisions, educating the patient right then and there. Uh, the next touch point is the actual pharmacy. So when we uh, send off medications to the pharmacy, we have another pharmacist uh, that's dispensing the medication and educating patients. Um, when the patient goes home, uh, there are pharmacists that will uh, monitor them and contact them from home. We have an oral chemotherapy program 
which is a different pharmacist uh, than I am, has different training than I do, um, and they are following up with their patient. Um, and then the patient also has options of which pharmacist they want to contact depending on what issue they have. Um, sometimes they'll send us uh, text messages through our, our EMR, uh, which we call M-baskets. Uh, they can communicate when they have specific issues, or they can communicate to you know, our pharmacy who's dispensing, or they can communicate to uh, our oral chemo pharmacist. You know, one point I'll, I want to make is sometimes when we uh, prescribe these medications and we're following them very closely for the first couple of weeks to months, eventually uh, patients need to be managed closer to home um, and they're not seeing us very often. And so they have an established PCP or a cardiologist. And so when some of the toxicities that we talked about on our last podcast, like atrial fibrillation uh, or bleeds or, or hypertension, and there are some other toxicities like diarrhea, uh, myalgias, uh, rashes that can happen with our BTK inhibitors. Some of these toxicities are happening and the patient's closer to home. Uh, it could be, you know, 100 miles away. And so we don't necessarily always know that they're having the, the toxicities because they'll present to their PCP or their cardiologist or their local hospital. Well, then there's another pharmacist at those other institutions that are also involved. Uh, whether they're oncology trained or not, uh, they're the ones that are helping uh, manage some of these toxicities uh, and educating their non-oncology team what a BTK inhibitor is um, and whether or not they think that that is the reason for the toxicity and then helping manage that toxicity. So a lot of pharmacists, you know, all over the place, which is, which is really great. So it really sounds like that continuous adherence is so important to uh, this treatment uh, with BTK um, inhibitors. And, and it's really critical for the success of the patient, the outcomes that are intended um, for this, for the disease. Can you, please elaborate on the impact of non-adherence to uh, patient outcomes? Non-adherence, um, you know, to put it frankly, is, is bad. Patients are going to have worse outcomes if they are not adherent. Um, and that's, you know, just the bluntness of the matter. And, and it's not just in my opinion. We actually have data that shows that if patients are not adherent, they're going to have uh, worse progression-free survival. We're not going to be able to control their disease if they're not taking their medication um, as most effectively and uh, consistently as possible. We have two uh, manuscripts that I want to talk about today that are specifically for BTK inhibitors. And there are a lot of other studies out there for uh, CML drugs and, and other oral um, chemotherapies, but specifically for BTK inhibitors and for abrutinib. There's a study by Barr and colleagues published in Blood in 2017, and then uh, Williams and colleagues also published in 2019. Um, these are studies that showed that if patients are not adherent, and the way that they defined non-adherence was if you missed seven consecutive days, which is a lot, um, or if they were not taking their medications more than 80% uh, of the time, which is actually not that much, right? So that's a patient that misses more than two days per week. Um, that's how they define non-adherence. If those patients were not taking their medication uh, or missed two or more days per week, their progression-free survival was worse. Their disease was not as controlled um, because they were missing their medications. And one of the other interesting aspects of the study was that patients became non-adherent pretty quickly. 
within eight weeks, some patients were already non-adherent. Um, and so that's why we have very close monitoring initially for patients to make sure that if they're having toxicities within the first eight weeks, that we're uh, aggressively uh, medically managing the patients uh, and educating uh, them on, on what they can do. Um, and also continuing to educate them on the importance of adherence and that if they're not adherent, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to control their disease as well. So we focused on non-adherence on so many different um, podcasts specific to disease states. And I think of barriers um, to adherence, uh, payment issues, um, the, 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 the element that a patient starts feeling better and they stop taking their medication. What type of barriers to adherence do you see uh, in patients with BTK inhibitors? Every patient is unique and every patient's going to have their own unique situations that, you know, cause them to be uh, not perfectly adherent, right? Um, and so it's our job as pharmacists to, to try to identify what is unique about that patient. And that's, you know, going back to one of the challenges of we have to be adaptable, uh, not only with the changing landscape of treatment, but also kind of the changing landscape of patients and, you know, what, what issues patients have. And so, um, you know, one big aspect is uh, socioeconomic. Um, patients that can't afford their medication are not going to take their medications. So those are some things that we uh, try to help out with patients. We have a, a very robust uh, oral chemotherapy program uh, that helps us try to find grants. Uh, we try to, you know, write for petitions to the pharmaceutical company to help for, for assistance. Uh, so we're doing quite a bit to, to block that barrier. Um, some things are, you know, the patients are just, to your point, just feeling well, right? Um, patients been on, say, a calibrutinib for two years now and has absolutely no disease symptoms. So they're thinking, well, my disease is gone. Maybe I don't need to take this medication. Uh, or the, the inverse, some patients uh, are having toxicities and they don't feel well from their medication. And so that can be a barrier to, to good adherence. Um, some patients don't trust healthcare, um, you know, especially right now uh, with COVID, there's just so much misinformation going on that the trust as a whole in healthcare um, is, is not the best. And so I think, you know, as pharmacists, it's our job uh, to, to build rapport with our patients. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we have uh, these touch points to develop relationships with these patients. Uh, and that's why our touch points are uh, uh, there, there's a lot initially where, you know, we're monitoring patients sometimes on a weekly and then a biweekly basis to, you know, not only just catch things, but also to, to develop the relationship with patients. Um, some things are patient related where, you know, think about CLL, the median age of CLL is about 70, 72. Uh, some patients are even older. And so some patients can't remember to take their medications and so these are some things that, um, you know, we can help identify and, and help with patients. Um, some patients have a, a big pill burden uh, because of their disease characteristics or their comorbidities. Um, and so, you know, we try our best to, to help them with that as well. Pharmacists are so trusted by their patients. There's been so many surveys over the years that have been done, which shows uh, and a, a very high trust level um, between patients and pharmacists. I think that's important for adherence too, and understanding and education. So what do you think pharmacists can do to help a patient that is having challenges with adherence to um, oral, um, 
oral medications such as BTK inhibitors? Yeah, the first thing that I always try to do is involve my patient as much as possible. Um, and that starts from when the, the diagnosis is made uh, that, you know, myself and our physician colleagues are sitting down with a patient to uh, discuss why we think they have their diagnosis and what their diagnosis means to them. And we're helping them uh, and it, we're, we're educating them on their various options so that they can help decide what therapy uh, that might be best for them. Because if, if, if they feel like they have a choice, um, they feel like they're a little bit more empowered and they feel like um, they're, they're helping make decisions um, and that their decisions matter, right? And so when we have that mentality that their decisions matter, well, their decisions will also matter a lot with adherence. Um, and so that's one of the big things is trying to empower the patients uh, so that they feel like they have some say. Um, we try to also motivate them too. Um, one motivation is going back to some of the studies that we talked about that you know, you need to take this medication every single day. Um, and the more you miss, the, the less likely we're going to be able to uh, control your disease. But, you know, ultimately, we're, we really try to encourage them uh, to take an active role uh, in, in their care. Um, you know, the, the big thing about all of this is what we touched upon initially, you know, and I mentioned that uh, I do a lot of lectures and educating uh, to trainees and whatnot. But, you know, a lot of our day-to-day -day is educating patients and they might not be didactic lectures and whatnot, but you know, we're sitting down and we're educating them on their therapies. Uh, we're educating them on the importance, importance of adherence. Uh, we're educating them on toxicities so that um, they're aware of the toxicities so that when they, when the toxicities happen, they're not surprised and they're, they're not caught off guard. Um, and they, they can't say, well, Anthony, you didn't tell me about the side effect. I was completely not uh, expecting this. And then, you know, they lose trust. So developing trusting uh, and honest relationships are really important, I think, uh, for uh, adherence. So let's talk a little bit about digital technology and the use of, of, technologies that are are more prevalent now than ever especially with the pandemic we're doing zoom meetings now more than ever i think i do at a minimum two a day if not five a day so the usage the use of digital technology in telemedicine um, has really expanded it's grown and it's become more secure um, and and i'm wondering can you share examples of digital technology solutions when it comes to um, treatment and in pharmacist interaction? Sure. Um, there's actually um, very recently, one of my colleagues at the University of Michigan published a, a study showing the use of electronic text messaging, so a digital technology, that the text message uh, would send off to a patient that re was receiving any hyaluronic uh, chemotherapy. And this text message would uh, ask the patient a variety of different things, very simple things like, you know, did you drink today? Uh, are you able to keep in food? Are you nauseous? Did you have to take any of your breakthrough medications? Things like that. And then what this technology would then do is uh, create a scoring tool that would um, fire off to our pharmacist. And if it hit a certain number, it would red flag the pharmacist to say, oh, you know, Sally's not eating or drinking. Uh, she might need a call. And so our pharmacist would then call that patient um, after being triggered by the electronic medical record, call the patient. And, and actually we had a 
collaborative practice where they're able to prescribe antiemetics while the patient's at the home. So what this ended up doing was it reduced healthcare utilization, especially right now with COVID. Nobody wanted to leave their homes and and go to uh, the hospital or even go to their PCP. So we are able to just call in a prescription, have the patient pick up a prescription for nausea medications. Or what, what we also did is, you know, the medications that they had available to them at their home, you know, a lot of times we're giving on Dancitron or uh, uh, Compazine. We were just able to teach them how to then uh, administer breakthrough uh, antiemetics to help with their nausea. And we were able to reduce healthcare visits. We were able to reduce uh, ED visits. And I say we, it's not me. I don't want to take the credit for, for this. It was all my my colleagues on, on our outpatient side um, that did this. And, and it was remarkable. And, and you know, all of the leadership, uh, not non-pharmacy leadership and uh, in our cancer center absolutely loved this because of how much we were able to reduce uh, healthcare utilization. Um, so that, that's uh, one big uh, integration that uh, we had at our institution. Um, there are a lot of tools out there, and it really depends on what you're trying to do, right? So if, if a patient is not remembering to take their medication, there's this really cool uh, service uh, called a virtually observed therapy, where a patient can take their iPad or their iPhone uh, and they'll video themselves taking their medication. And on the other side, there could be a third party that watches them take their medication. Um, obviously, this is not that easy to do when you're taking a medication every single day, uh, and it could be somewhat laborious for that third party. So what these technologies now are starting to do is use artificial intelligence that, you know, our iPhones are pretty smart. They can look at you and say, okay, well, that's Anthony because it, it has facial recognition. And then it can see the tablet that you're taking, and then you administer the medication. So this is something um, that I, I think is really cool. I think it's up and coming. The other thing that it can do is it can track things. So when you forget or to, to show your, your iPhone or your, your whatever digital technology that you're using, your iPad, when you forget to do it that day, it'll remind you to say, hey, you forgot to take your abrutinib today. Uh, so there are uh, a, a decent amount of examples out there. There's a local mobile health. Uh, there's Shured here. Um, and then, you know, there are other things that I think people or patients are using a little bit more of, and that's adherence apps. Um, I think uh, they're, they're pretty easy to use. Uh, there's a lot of them out there. There's Pill Monitor, there's uh, CareZone. Uh, they're just widely available, and those can also, those are digital technologies that can help uh, patients uh, remember to take their medications. There are also uh, smart pill bottles, and, and I remember smart pill bottles probably like 15 years ago or so when there was a really cool study uh, that was trying to monitor a matnib, um, a matnib adherence, and they used a, a pill bottle that every time you pulled off the cap, there was a sensor in the cap. Patients didn't know it, uh, and they were tracking their adherence. Um, and so now, obviously, the patients uh, will know that there's a sensor in the cap, but then that sensor can then uh, track their adherence. They can track how many times patient opened their cap uh, of their bottle. And again, if, if they forgot to open their cap today or their bottle today, uh, it would then um, trigger them to, to, to take their medication. Um, there are other technologies. There's smart pill dispensers that I think are, are pretty cool. Uh, there are um, uh, smart technologies. There, 
I don't know exactly their names, but they're they're sort of like these mini robots um, that are like your 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 digital um, a digital caretaker almost, where this this little robot um, can can actually see you in the room, and as you're walking by, say, "Hey, Anthony, it's time to take your medication," and then the little robot kind of just uh, spits out the the medication and then you're kind of you, you kind of have to just take the medication right then and there so this this thing is acts acts like your caregiver almost so a lot of a lot of really cool things that are you know up and coming and some things that are already being used so there have been some studies done on improving patient outcomes um, one of them is the the bash study can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit yeah, there's been uh, two bash studies. They've been they've done a, an incredible job showing the benefit of of digital health. Uh, so in these studies, essentially what they do is they have the patient um, report out. So these are patient reported outcomes on a tablet or an email or a computer, and they're essentially asking. Uh, answering 12 questions. And when they answer these 12 questions, it then routes uh, the answers to uh, physicians or the nurses, and then they'll get email alerts um, and they'll get alerted when patients are reporting more severe or worsening symptoms. And what will then happen is it'll trigger the nurse to call the patient to, you know, triage, okay, what's going on? How can I help? Um, obviously, they can prescribe things at home, and they can also tell the patient to come in uh, for medical attention if it's needed. And so because they are able to catch symptoms so much earlier and they manage symptoms so much earlier with this digital technology, they actually reduced uh, ED visits, they reduced hospital admissions. Um, and what was remarkable is that patients were able to then stay on their therapy longer because they were now uh, you know, managing the toxicities. And with staying on therapy longer, that ends up equating to better disease control of their underlying malignancy. And ultimately, Bosch uh, and, and colleagues showed an improvement in overall survival when they used this digital technology as compared to standard of care. And the other important thing uh, beyond just improving overall survival that I think is important is improvement of quality of life. Uh, they were able to show that as well. So can you please also share a little more on how these tools are used in everyday clinical practice um, for patients? Again, it kind of goes back to um, you know what what is your the unique needs of your patient, and so I think um, you can envision using these technologies in a thousand different ways, and so it really comes down to your personal preference, uh, the patient's needs, the patient's personal preference. But you know, going back to uh, the the four touch points that I mentioned, so inside of the clinics, uh, inside of the pharmacy. Uh, the patient communicating from home uh, or pharmacist following up with the patient at home. Those are kind of the four places that, that I guess I'll start. And so, you know, in the clinics, uh, the first thing that, that we tend to do is try to standardize um, digital prescribing. Um, so that's digital, right? And this helps reduce medication errors. Um, we, uh, even during COVID started doing virtual educations. And 
Um, some of them we could do pre-recorded because you can capture more patients, but obviously, you know, we would prefer one-on-one, -on -one, but it's a possibility to do, uh, things pre-recorded because, you know, it's, it's digital. And so patients can have on demand, um, kind of like Netflix, uh, where they can just watch things whenever they want, or if they need to remind themselves of certain toxicities or certain things about their, their medication, they have the ability to just pull it up and, and learn about it again. Um, so, so it, and it also makes things a little bit more interactive for patients too. Um, you know, navigating access from the clinic and this goes through the pharmacy. Um, you know, we have a digital portal where we can see all the communication that's kind of going back and forth so that we know where the medication is in the process. Is it stuck with uh, requiring a prior auth? Uh, is it stuck with um, needing grant support or copay assistance? Uh, is it stuck just waiting for the patient to pick it up, right? So these are all things that uh, we can help uh, monitor and obviously uh, can then help with adherence because if a patient doesn't have their medication with them, they, they can't be adherent. Um, and as I said, in the Huff studies and the Bosch studies, um, there's quite a bit of integration now with the EMR with, with text messaging. So those are some examples inside the clinic. Um, uh, you know, in the clinic, we can also help educate patients on how to set up their apps. Uh, we can help them uh, with, you know, pill bottles and things like that. But also the pharmacy inside the pharmacy can do that as well. So the pharmacy is going to help with, you know, navigating access, as I mentioned, with the portal. Uh, they can help uh, dispense or educate patients on using the digital pill packs uh, or the digital bottles. Um you know, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, there's just so many examples that you can you can turn this into uh, a lot of different ways to to help patients. Um, when the patient goes home, I think one of the the biggest things uh, that that I think is important are patient reported outcomes. So now with digital technology, it makes things just so much easier for them to not have to call, sit on hold get to somebody that might not be the right person um, with digital technologies, they can send a text message. It fires right to who it needs to fire to. Um, so, so that's, that's um, something for when the patient goes home. And, you know, I mentioned video directly observed therapies or, or V dot. Um, so that's when, you know, the patient is actually observed via their tablet or the phone uh, taking their medication. So that's something that that patient can use at home. And then, you know, the last uh, touch point from the pharmacist was us calling the patient uh, when they're at home. And one of the things that we've utilized a lot of uh, more recently is vi video visits um, or what we call virtual visits. And um, the nice thing is that insurance companies recognize the need uh, and the importance of virtual visits. And so uh, a lot of times we're able to bill and we're able to actually even to bill as pharmacists um, for, for that uh, interaction with patients. And so uh, we've done a ton of uh, just checkups, uh, educations, um, you know, things like that so that we're constantly in communication with our patients when they need it. I think of how healthcare is going through this transformation in pharmacy very much so some of the roles of pharmacists are so much expanding especially with the use of digital technology and you touched on uh, telemedicine and in in how insurance companies now are 
are embracing and 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 reimbursing the use of telemedicine and pharmacy counseling and ongoing. So, kind of expand upon telemedicine specifically um, in in your practice over the last year. Yeah, absolutely. So, COVID uh, has forced us to innovate very quickly. And again, it goes back to that big challenge that we first talked about and that uh, pharmacists need to adapt. And honestly, we adapted very, very quickly um, compared to some of our colleagues. Uh, technology is something that we, you know, we embrace. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I just feel like it's in pharmacist DNA to, to just rapidly change to whatever situation and whatever is urgently needed. Right. And so COVID was one of those things that forced us to do that. So we started doing a lot of, of virtual visits, uh, which, you know, patients absolutely love. We loved, we were doing, you know, we, you could do virtual med recs, you can do virtual toxicity checks, um, you could do, I mean, you can manage their toxicities for the most part um, from home. Uh, and so we tried to use as much virtual visits as possible to try to prevent patients from having to come into the hospital or even to our clinic. Um, and we did this uh, virtually in in all patients, unless they needed a physical exam or they needed to come in for tests, um, you know, for, for other reasons. So all other patients we're doing uh, virtual visits for. Um, you know, it, communication, if, if communication was the main intervention uh, and we didn't, you know, again, patients didn't need to come in for CT scans or PET scans or whatever, we were doing them virtually. So that's, that's a big change that we had. Um, and, you know, to me, it's much, much more efficient uh, for my practice to just jump on a Zoom than to, you know, find a patient in the room. Um, and, you know, our, our rooms uh, are a hot commodity. We're trying to get patients in and out. There are just not enough rooms to, 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 to room patients, especially with COVID, because you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, cleaning that we had to do. Um, you're only allowed a certain amount of people in the room at once, uh, only allowed a certain amount of people in hallways at once. So, you know, freeing up all that traffic by pushing as much as possible at home was, was really great. And so I think, um, it was definitely much more efficient for me, but I think also for the healthcare system, it was much more efficient, uh, for patients. Also patients loved virtual visits, you know, uh, our capture area is massive. You know, could you imagine driving eight hours, uh, you know, just for a toxicity check that we could talk about it, you know, over a virtual visit, right? So patients not having to drive hours and hours, even a patient that lives, you know, I'm in Ann Arbor, if they live, you know, 15 minutes from our, our institution, even for them trying to find parking takes forever. So for them, they are really happy. Um, so, you know, and beyond efficiency, it really encouraged better communication back and forth from us and the patient. And with better communication, we are able to rapidly identify, uh, prevent, and treat patients' toxicities earlier. And you saw from the, tr the studies that I mentioned earlier that if you if you identify, prevent, and, and treat a patient's toxicity earlier, they're going to stay on their therapy longer. They're going to stay adherent. Their disease is going to stay in better control, and you're likely going to improve uh, how long they live. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, so much appreciate uh, you um, you spending our time, uh, spending your time with us and 
giving our listeners kind of an in-depth uh, understanding of BTK inhibitors and and kind of something that's much more modern, which is the technologies at hand that we can be leveraging now as as pharmacists. In wrapping up, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in? Patients who are not adherent with their BTK inhibitors will have worse outcomes. Uh, that is the unfortunate truth. However, majority of this is preventable. And I think pharmacists uh, being a part of their care uh, will be able to prevent some of the, the, the not adherence and the toxicities from the, the BTK inhibitors. Um, pharmacists uh, are able to identify the barriers. They're able to find solutions. Uh, they're able to help medically manage some of the toxicities. They're able to educate patients and have you know a unique skill with uh, patients in uh, keeping them on therapy. So, um, and with that, I think we're very lucky to have a number of new digital technologies that we're able to use to make our care uh, much more efficient. And, you know, it, it's not only better for uh, managing patients, it's also better just for me as a pharmacist and other uh, profession, medical professionals. Um, and ultimately, you know, today's discussion was about adherence. And there's no doubt in my mind that these digital technologies uh, are helping promote adherence. Uh, and ultimately, when you promote adherence, patients stay on therapy longer, and uh, they're going to derive more benefit from their therapy. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anthony. This has been uh, fascinating. We, we very much appreciate you. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.